Hi, this is Brian Brodeur. On a recent trip to London, I had the pleasure of speaking with producer-engineer Miles Clark. We recorded our conversation on board Pete Townsend's floating studio, The Grand Crew. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. So, Miles Clark, thank you for joining me. No worries. We are here in London yeah. on Grand Crew, the leading floating studio in the world. That's right. Yeah. Right? It must, surely must be. So let's start right there. Yeah. So um, it's common knowledge that the studio is owned by Pete Townsend of The Who. Uh-huh. And I'd like to go backwards a little bit about the history of the studio. Yep. So originally, the barge, the, the Grand Crew, was... Yeah. Uh, moored further up west, further up the Thames. Yeah, originally what happened, and this is open to some kind of errors, but from what I understand, Pete bought two barges in the mid-70s, 76-ish, I think. One was designed to be the studio, well, he had designs on one being the studio, rather, and the other one was supposed to be a floating accommodation so that they could, you know go places, have a massive green room with accommodation, and then actually do albums on here. That was always the idea. I think that the other boat that was bought at the same time wasn't in such a good shape. (laughs) And I think that one just kind of went by the wayside, but this was built uh, into the studio it is now in Pete's garden, basically, because he had a house in, I think it was Henley or Godalming or somewhere like that, out on the Thames, uh, and at the end of the garden was the river, and this was moored there, and a guy called Eddie Veal. In the past, I always thought it was um, a, a different guy who, who built the studio, but it was Eddie Veal, who I've since met, when, uh, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But he'd done some rooms for John Lennon and George Harrison, and he was just kind of getting into, you know, studio building, I kind of, I guess, when it was just sort of exploding on that you know, rich rock stars having their own rooms. So he was building commercial facilities, but also doing this kind of weird project, but not necessarily this weird on a boat. So, and interestingly, when we set this up as a commercial studio again, a few years ago, we we had an AES barbecue and sure enough, he turned up and it was just, I really wish I'd filmed it because watching him, he was, he must be in his eighties, I guess, watching him sort of struggle to get down the stairs, but watching his, you know, eyes light up as, and the first thing he said was, what are they? And he pointed at some acoustic panels that had been added into the room. It was like somebody had committed some kind of mortal offensive sin. <laughs> it's like, what are they? <laughs> but um, apart from that, it's pretty much as he, as he designed it. As I was saying to you before, yeah. at one point the live room was sort of intended to be the control room. This bigger space that we're sitting in now was supposed to be the live room with that as a booth. It's just kind of changed over the years. Various people have used it in different ways. Um, interestingly, as the World Cup is on at the moment, um, Ian Brody of the Lightning Seeds ran it as his production room for a while. And the very famous British song, Three Lions on a Shirt, because football is coming home this year. Yeah, it's right. very apt right now. Um, <laughs> was written on here. Um, and I believe he had this as the control room as well. So this is kind of how it's evolved over time. There was a period after that when I first knew the boat in the early 2000s where Bobby Pridden, who's worked as the Who monitor guy, sound guy forever, 
uh, he ran it and I would always come down and help him with bits and bobs when, as he was getting to grips with Pro Tools. And he had it rather like this really, but it was a bit more basic and it was more for 5.1 mixing, just straightforward Pro Tools mixing really. But then as I took it on in 2008, nine, something like that, it started off with this desk, which I'd had somewhere else for a while. It's a kind of really long story, but I ended up being on here. We setting up another room that was quite like Bobby had, and then adding more and more and more and more, and Pete would then start coming down to work here on various things, and kind of before you know it, this kind of setup, but without so many instruments. And then as we took it more commercial, it just seemed sense to fill out with some instruments as well. Not too much, but... We've probably gone a little bit overboard with that now, but yeah, well, it's have, cool. I'm looking around, and yeah. you've got a full rhythm section. I mean, you've got drums. Yeah. You've got a, a digital mini grand over here, right? Yeah. Yamaha. Yeah, we'll talk gear in a second. Sure. Uh, certainly, there's yeah. lots to look at and talk about. So one thing at a time. So we'll do a little who history and connect it, right? Sure. So many people will see liner note credits yeah. and understand Eel Pie Studios. Yeah. And certainly, there's a connection of this studio to Eel Pie up the river at Twickenham, yeah. Yeah. right? So if I understand correctly, Eel Pie had some shorebound you know, on-land yeah. studio yeah. facilities with this moored near. Correct. What then happened is that the studio was built outside Pete's house. Yeah. But then, as things were probably going well, I believe the, the stage show for Tommy was happening and stuff, so that probably gave a little bit more financial backing. Uh, and there was a boathouse, a boatyard, just by the uh, Richmond Lock, between Richmond and Twickenham, mm. and Pete had always rode past it. He talks about that in his book, actually. He'd always rode past it and thought, you know, I like that place, I like that place, and eventually got the opportunity to buy it, and he turned the old boathouse into a full-blown studio. I don't know whether this got forgotten about, but there was certainly, you know, a new toy, essentially, to play with. And it was on the river. It didn't have moorings initially, but they built moorings up, there, so this ended up being outside as a Studio 3, really, I suppose. Right, almost like another room of the facility. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Lincoln Fong, who I, I work with quite a lot, who does a lot of work with Pete, recently dug out um, a kind of a press release thing for the Pie Studios. If I can find it, I'll forward it on to you, because it's really interesting. Yeah. And Pete had the first or second SSL desk in the country, moored, uh, not moored, uh, in that <laughs> studio. Um, and it was a full-blown tracking studio. Um, so that was Eel Pie Studios. And there had be previously been an Eel Pie Studios actually in Soho, in the centre of London. So he kind of shifted that around. Eel Pie, publishing, record productions and what have you, has always been Pete's thing. It's so, like that umbrella. Yeah, right? that umbrella, exactly. Yeah. And um, so the boathouse was the building. Eel Pie Studios were the studios. Then what happened, uh, which he ran for a while, and then what happened in, I guess, the late 90s, Ian Brodie was on here, and then actually the main studio building itself was rented out to the Cocteau Twins, right. who then ran it commercially as a studio called September Sound, mm -hmm. which is actually where I first did my very first assisting gig. Oh. Yeah, which was on a session with Nick Lowe. And, and that's the Stiff Records connection, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Was he doing Stiff at that time? Yes, he would have been, yeah. 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 So, um, actually, no, that was proper, uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of all the same crowd. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, that was my first assistant gig. I was very new to it. I'd been up in college in Liverpool um, yeah. and came down and, and so that was my first experience of studios in London, was working at, that I didn't really know because I thought of it as the Cocteau's Twin Studio, but it was actually belonged to Pete and this was moored outside, bizarrely. Yeah. Then, very shortly afterwards, September Sound sort of fell apart a bit and the cocktails went their separate ways and, you know, uh, Simon went on to start Bella Union, the record label, 
I think Robin's involved as well. And Pete took it back into his own domain a little bit, but it took some time for it to get, you know, sort of back up and running. This is like 90s? Yeah, no, this was early 2000s. My first session there would have been about 99, I guess, 2000. Yeah. I went off and worked at Metropolis, then Strongroom, which is where we're going to a party tonight. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. And so from my point of view, I didn't really think much of it until kind of after I'd stopped uh, assisting so much and been doing a bit more engineering, I was asked to do a freelance session at this new studio called Oceanic Studios, which is the same building, <laughs> no longer Real Pie Studios, called Oceanic because the building itself, when Pete first took it on, was also had a link to Mayor Barber and Pete's sort of spiritual um, mm -hmm. dealings with Mayor Barber. So it was always called the Mayor Barber Oceanic Centre, as well as Eel Pie Studios. It's kind of went, in terms of its usage, it's sort of a little bit vague maybe, but that's what it was. Yeah. So it came back as the Oceanic Studios, which I became the sort of chief engineer for um, from 2003, 2002, 2003, until he then sold it in 2007, 2008. Yep. Actually, when we went up the river recently, we went past. It's kind of sad to see it. Because as it's it not is. a studio, right? It's a private yeah. Or something? I've, I understand that there's some kind of issues with its usage yeah. as a residence. In fact, I understand that it's got to be maintained as a recording studio, unbelievably, for a you know five million quid property on the Thames. But yeah, it's kind of it's pretty complicated. Sure. But it was a wonderful place. But Grand Crew comes off and comes down the river here, yeah. right, and moors up St Catharines. Yeah. So it went uh, sort of when the studio was sold, that went off for a, a nice blue paint job because previously it was green and orange, <laughs> which was it was cool. But so it came here after a long time away, getting sort of fixed up a bit. But the studio itself was the inside was just exactly as we'd left it. So um, you know, kind of very dusty and nothingy really, mm. and. I went off and sort of worked freelance for a while, still did a lot of stuff with Pete, various who jobs, did various things in, you know, booking other studios. And then it seemed sensible for me to have a base really to work out of, and I ended up running a little studio in Hackney, uh, above a, a big studio, I had a small production room really, mm -hmm. which was cool, but I kind of said to Pete, look, I'm looking for another space again, can I continue to use these bits of gear? And he said, why don't you go onto the barge and we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, and that was, that was 2007, 2008. And then as things went on, we did loads of things in here, uh, classic Quadrophenia, did a load of, the, load of the early work before, obviously, the, the main recording happened at Air Studios. Um, but, you know, kind of running it through with Alfie and various sort of test vocalists and things like that. So we did a lot of the work here. Uh, yeah, lo just kind of generally anything, anything that sort of requires more than Pete working at home kind of comes through here. So. Endless Wire? Endless Wire, no, that was prior to this. So um, Endless Wire was in Oceanic Studios. Got it, yeah, got it. 2005 and six. Yeah, so that marks that change yeah. down to here. Interesting. Yeah. I'd love to dive into some of the gear, yeah. but before we get to that, I, I want to learn a little bit about you, Yeah. right? So coming up to Metropolis, yeah. your role there was still assisting? <laughs> I kind of went back down a role because I'd done a few assisting gigs at September Sound, like yeah. I said, Nick Lowe, uh, yeah. a few other things. But they then shut down, leaving me having moved to London with no job. <laughs> yeah. So, but my CV had been, you know, kind of, I'd circulated it a bit as best I could. Sure. 
and a job as cabling assistant came up at Metropolis, which was basically sitting in a room listening to the radio making cables all day. Oh, yeah. So my soldering at that point was pretty great. Not now, but it was, you know. I could never, I could never do it, so you're one <laughs> up on me. Yeah. Yeah, but that was good. And what happened, I was there for, you know, kind of a few months and started doing the odd bit of proper assisting, i.e. making more tea and being in the studio a bit more. But not, you know, not much. And then my CV had been passed on to Strong Room so, and I get a call from, from the strong room, from Nina there, who sort of said, do you want to come for a, a second interview? I can't even remember, it's a long time ago now, how it worked, but essentially I got a phone call saying, do you want to come and start as the in-house assistant here? Where most of those guys were freelancers. Like, this seems like a good opportunity, and I won't be making cables. So I went upstairs at Metropolis and said, they've offered me a job. And they yeah. said, well, you, we can start you as an house assistant tomorrow. It's like, oh. <laughs> So I actually, uh, I don't think this is treading on too many toes to say that I asked the assistants at Metropolis, shall I stay here or shall I go to Strong Room? And they said, yeah, maybe do that. So, right. Yeah. At the time, you know, Metropolis was great. And it's, you know, it was maybe going through a bit of a lull period, shall we say, um, in terms of, you know, some of the upper people there. Right. Uh, it's cool. It, it picked up again and it's really great now. Well, but, it's known as a major place. Yeah, yeah, and there have been changes yeah. both in the New York area yeah. and London. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, yeah, yeah. Air being up for sale, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, there's lots of changes. I'd like to hear your opinion about that stuff. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Let's talk about Strong Room. Yeah. So you go to Strong, Strong Room, Room yeah. assisting. Yeah. Tell me about that. What was that like for you? you know, was, it, was that you really feel like, wow, I'm getting through a door or just, oh, well, I'm making At a At the change? time I did. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, and Jonathan, you know, who works here, assisting but also engineering, I mean, he's probably got as much opportunity as anybody in any London studio to progress through. You know, that back then you would assist for quite a long time, mm. but it seemed at that time that across all studios that many people who were assisting then just seemed to be assisting forever because the kind of the way that everything worked and the way that albums were made was beginning to change. Mm -hmm. Laptops and, and home production coming into play yeah. a lot. No more patch bays and yeah, work. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was all changing. But, you know, in terms of my assisting time at Strong Room, I was sort of lucky enough to hit it when Pro Tools was... Strong Room was the first studio in London to offer Pro Tools as a standard without having to hire it in from DreamHire or FX or uh, whatever. It's a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, all studios came as standard with a couple of Studas or a couple of Atari machines. So Strongham had been the first to introduce Radar and then the first to, as a standard thing, and then they introduced Pro Tools yeah. as a standard thing with Apogee converters. It was, you know... Yeah, getting I mean, ahead of that. I can't, I can't remember what version we were running at then, but, but you know, that was, that was a pretty big, big deal. Big deal, yeah, absolutely. So that was great, and with my background, as you were saying, a similar kind of thing is that my background was sequencing Atari ST you know, samplers, keyboards, as a musician. So I was kind of aware of running a session on the timeline on the computer yeah. um, rather than just on a piece of tape. So yeah. that was kind of handy. Do you think it... Was that a huge advantage? I think it was, yeah. 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 Because, you know, a lot of the musicians that were coming in were doing it on that basis. I mean, Strong Room had been around, you know, for 15 years prior to that and was actually... Always seemed to be the front, the cutting edge of things. And they had two, three main studios surrounded by small programming rooms mm -hmm. that were run by artists 
think Pet Shop Boys had a room there. Erasure did, I think, for a time. Cold Cut. You know, loads of different people coming and going, renting rooms, and therefore feeding for the mix sessions, particularly the main studios. That's kind of what was happening throughout the 90s, though. And I'm seeing tape machines locking to the, the Atari, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was still happening, but becoming more and more rare because you were able to do far more within sure. Pro Tools. I mean, it seems archaic now, the stuff that we were doing then in comparison to the, the kind of rig that we're, oh, that we're using Oh, it's ridiculous. Now, but, but that's just what it was. Um, but I got to assist on Prodigy Things, Orbital, Beta Band, Divine Comedy, Motorhead, um, loads of pop stuff at the time, S Club 7 and Liberty X, that was one, wasn't it? And Blue and, you know, loads of cool things and a huge variation of label-funded big projects. Yeah. Proper albums. So that was good, and that was kind of marked, not the end of it, because it's still going on, but that was the only way to do it, you know, then, really. Uh, and, and then what started happening after that is that more people were able to do much more of the pre-production at home. So pretty much every musician now has their own logic, has their own Pro Tools or whatever. So every musician's a producer themselves. So it's a sort of different setup now. But Let's go down that road. Yeah. I'd love to hear your download, your opinion of... Yeah how that industry has changed. Because we're of that same generation, yeah, you yeah, and I. Yeah. I saw that world, yeah. tape changing to digital, yeah. and how, in the way you put it, how yeah. proper albums were made, yeah. right? Yeah. Tell me how you see that's changed. We all know it has. Well, I think, actually, funnily, that you and I both got into things like sequencing and sampling and what have you because almost we were able to do that you know, on the cheap, at home. Yeah. You know, you're not talking necessarily about Fairlights and emulators. And, 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 and yeah. yeah, exactly. That was still out of the realms of reality. Mm -hmm. But by the time you got to the late 80s, early 90s, you had Atari STs yeah. running Cubase, which was always a crack, you know. Yeah, we um, used the early Logic. Yeah, and the early Logic, yeah, and, and Notator before that, you know. So, um, so Pro 12, all of those, all of those things that were on the Atari, but, you know, you had your 16 channels of MIDI and you could feed it to some boxes and, you know. <laughs> by that point, you could buy things sort of second. I mean, by, the, by the time I got in, involved in it, it was 91-ish, 92, uh, something like that. You could buy second-hand digital sound modules. They were, they were awful, but it kind of allowed you access to actually get involved and work out how to edit MIDI and stuff like that. Yeah. And if you wanted to add audio to it, you would sample it. I had a Roland W30 sampler. Yeah, um, but, you sure. know, and I always yeah. sort of lusted after an S760 or, a, you know, an Akai. Yeah, the S550 uh, Roland, yeah, yeah, the Akai, yeah, 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 exactly. 900s, yeah. So I kind of, you know, I sort of didn't get that far, really, but I had some access, you know, to be able to do what I needed to do or sure. wanted to do and get me into it. So we were kind of lucky in, in that sense, but I felt like a fraud, you know, looking at... There was not many documentaries around on how albums were made back then, but I kind of felt, well, this surely this isn't how they do it. You know, there's tape <laughs> machines and there's big desks that are, you know, the size of a boat, and you know, on all of. Uh, <laughs> but, but this is some kind of access to it, surely. So that's all I really, really knew. But um, did you think like we've got something here? Yeah. You know, oh yeah, right? definitely. Yeah, and I felt then it's like. Yeah, this is new and cool. And what I would actually find is I was sort of dicking around with my my samplers at home, and I would hear the stuff that's happening in the charts at the time, you know, and some of the kind of early rave tunes and things like that that you hear, and it's like, actually, this is kind of what I could do with this, and, and, and trying, failing but sometimes. here's a drum loop, and yeah, I can, yeah. I can exactly. trigger it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that gave access to anybody who was interested. I think what the problem is now, without sounding like an old fart, but I think the problem is now 
GarageBand comes as standard if you've got an iTunes account, doesn't it? You buy a laptop, it comes it with comes it. It comes with it, yeah. Free. And they're for everybody. Now, that it sounds incredibly snobbish to say that's not cool, because it is cool. It's great that everybody's got the opportunity to to do it but i think that promotes kind of laziness there's been since then there's been kind of all these loop kind of based oh, yeah. things which allow anybody to knock together a little tune yeah and and i think the idea of really really getting into it there's too much to make it easy for you whereas i think perhaps possibly if you came from the same place as i did yeah. you would sit there for hours with a kind of mediocre computer system and just work through how to do it sure. now you've got kind of an instant it sounds cool it is good and bad um well look the guys that were 10 to 15 years older than us yeah. would say yeah. hey i had a razor blade and yeah. look at these knuckleheads yeah, with the yeah. computer exactly right? and we're, and we're exactly here's the question for you yeah do you think because of the availability of technology that yep. you're talking yep. about is there more garbage is there more listen, junk music listen, you see because you can make more we, junk. We've, we've we've had this conversation so many times haven't we it's like is the pop music now just crap or is it just that we're just, um, well, for me, at 40, am I listening back to the, you know, loving the pop music, not just the indie guitar music that I was really into. Yeah. I love the pop music, of, you know. Am I just looking back and thinking, no, that's because I'm just not into this particular... But I think, actually, there's a lot of crap around, basically, is the yeah. short answer. And I think musicians of quality that then have a career... You know, things just so short-lived. Well, that goes back to the labels and yeah. are they supporting artists? Yeah. I, you know, yeah. you and I don't have enough time here yeah, on exactly. the Grand Crew Barge exactly. to talk about that. Here's a question I want to know. Tell me, you mentioned kind of the music you came up on, yeah. right? Give me some examples of music that turned you on. You okay. know, when you heard it, like, man, I want to go in the studio and get that sound. I think my kind of area was that as an early 90s British indie kid, mm. it was the back end of the Manchester scene... Uh, so you had Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Charlatans, <laughs> Northside, just tons of, yeah. you know, t tons of baggy guitar bands that were inspired a little bit by the rave scene that was happening in some ways as well. Hmm. But but also going back to the 60s, I was kind of too young for the Smiths and the Cure was still around a Fair bit. Enough, yeah. So it was the back end of the Manchester scene that I really heard and thought, that's cool, that's cool, rather than just the pop music that I'd been, you know, listening to. Yeah. And then actually around that time, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but, but it was pre-Britpop, so there were yeah. bands from the West Midlands, which is where I'm from, the Wonder Stuff and Pop Leads itself, and Carter, who weren't from, who were from London, but who were this like, little sort of strand of indie that was called Grebo in the enemy, you know, in, in the press, and, and that was actually huge at the time, but now people would, like, discount that as being this kind of Oh God, we can't talk about that. But it was it was actually it was a real sort of scene and people were into it and there was some pretty good music. And if you were an indie kid then, that's kind of what you'd listen to. And then Nirvana happened when I was at school. So yeah. it kind of all at roughly the same time. So then we were looking at Nirvana, Pearl Jam and and Mud Honey and all of that. Sure. And that sort of came into it. And then what happened is Britpop happened here and you had Blur and Oasis and everybody. Fascinating. So, tell me about Nirvana, or tell me about that world, because certainly from the states, yeah, we have very particular experience with that. Yeah, in our world, there's the day before that yeah. record, never yeah. mind. Yeah, and before then before that, that was on the on yeah, the shelf, yeah, absolutely. and then after. Yeah, yeah. I was 16, 15, 16, and I remember in our prefect room at school, we were allowed to play music. It's, so that suddenly somebody brought in this cassette, and it's like that. It changed everything. Yeah, for. Anybody that was slightly into music, that changed everything. And because we had this kind of indie scene, but we were all kind of a bit weird at school for being into that. 
Mm. Do you know what I mean? No, being no, a bit no. Too explain, I, I know, but explain that. Well, you're either into football or you're into music. That yeah. was always the way it was, you yeah. know? You could be a bit into both, but... Very much, if you know, if you had long hair at school if, in, in the West Midlands, in, in, you know, yeah, yeah. when you were fifteen, that you, you're kind of and really into music. You're not considered weird, but it was no, but you're it, out. It, you're, you're a bit out, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I definitely had that. But then suddenly everybody was going, "What's this? We want to jump up and down to it." And it was, you know, and, and suddenly it brought a lot more people into that. I think now that's let me connect the dots, yeah, because that's fascinating. Yeah. Because we listen to that album now, yeah. And those are songs, yeah. and there's a vibe, and it's special, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that didn't have anything to do with Garage Band. Those are a bunch of guys yeah, in, yeah. coming down from Seattle yeah. to L.A., you know, in Van Nuys, yeah. and cut that record. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like that. Thanks for listening, and please tune in for part two of my conversation with Miles Clark next week. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.